Thank you very much indeed. Obviously, happy Easter. That goes without saying, really, doesn't it? Um, I'm going to, in just one moment, help us to have a little closer look at the Easter story. Really, the, the, the Easter story, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is not, it's not as well known, perhaps, as it would have been a little while ago in this culture, but it's still... Uh, kind of carries a, a sort of an echo, a, a semblance of, of, of understanding in our culture, but it's viewed in many, many different ways. And you may well have uh, a particular view of the Easter story that you've come here with this morning. What I want to try and do is just interact a little bit with, with what happened uh, back then and what it might mean for us today. So some people's approach to Easter is the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday is that it's very much a myth, but a powerful myth that carries with it an important message of the power of love over hate and of, and of kind of ultimate triumph over injustice and, and bad things. Other people would say, no, no, it's a, it's a myth that rolls on really from very, very uh, kind of pre-Christian days. Just simply speaking of a new season breaking out, we celebrate the end of winter, spring coming and if you're like me, you, you desperately celebrate the coming of spring because winter's so dreadful. But other people would say, no, it's not, it's not a myth, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a story, but it carries with it the idea of a fresh start. And that wherever your life has ended up and wherever you might have found yourself, the situation, now there's hope for a fresh start. Even when things look bleak, when it feels like Good Friday, there's hope for an Easter Sunday. Some people would say it's explicitly a story that it is there to give us hope for a better future. Whatever the present is like now, Jesus rose, there's a better future there. There's aspects of truth in all of those understandings of the Easter story, but I think all of them miss the big idea itself. And what I want to try and do is look at what is the big idea, the thing that you can't miss if you're going to understand Easter. And the big idea that we're going to look at for a few minutes this morning is the Easter banquet. I'm going to talk about the Easter banquet, and hopefully we will see how that holds everything else together. I'll briefly tell you the story of Easter, uh, just to give the details uh, spread out. It it takes place uh, about 2,000 years ago in 34, probably 34, give or take a year, 34 AD, in Jerusalem. All the events are in and around Jerusalem, which was the capital city uh, of the ancient state of Israel a couple of thousand years ago at the time of the events of the Easter story. It was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. It's a city set in a very a kind of a high sort of hill country towards the center uh, of the country of Israel. And it's built, to say it's built on mountains gives you the wrong idea because you always kind of think of Mount Everest with a big city at the top and you think that's an inconvenient location uh, and certainly difficult for gardening. But it's more a sense of a, a series of these kind of small mountains clumped together. One in particular is the one that the, the ancient old city of Jerusalem would be built on. Mount Zion, it was called. And so all these events are going to take place in the city of Jerusalem and around it. They're going to take place on this mountain in the central highlands of Israel. Jesus, the hero of the story, receives a hero's welcome when he arrives into Jerusalem. As he, as he, as he comes in with his group of followers, it feels like the whole town has come out to celebrate and to cheer. They, they think, we don't know what he's going to do, but it's going to be amazing. And there's this mass celebration, almost to the point probably where you can feel the Roman authorities nervous. What is, what is going to kick off here? 
This is, it almost feels like kind of people power that we can't control. Jesus, however, takes a private route and shares a last meal with his followers, his close disciples, in an upper room of a, of a large house. They share the Jewish Passover meal together. The Jewish Passover was a meal where Israelites and Jews celebrated the historic release of the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt under Moses. And so Jesus and his disciples would be sharing this meal. It would be lamb, bread made without yeast, and wine. And there would be various kind of sort of ceremonial ritual elements they would do. They would take and share things and drink the cup. As they were drinking the wine, Jesus makes a very a kind of strange reference to this, this cup contains my blood which is going to be poured out for you. And people are like, we don't understand what it is. It's, it's the meal that is, is, is referred to as the Last Supper. We find it in a number of famous uh, paintings. But this meal is not the Easter banquet. We're going to get to the Easter banquet later. This isn't it. But Jesus shares this final meal, this Last Supper, with his disciples. After that, Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested. He was convicted in really what was a sham trial. It was rigged from the start. Fake witnesses speaking against him. They'd already decided the verdict even before he'd stepped into the room. He was handed over to the authorities. He was beaten. He was mistreated. He was abused. And then he was taken out to be executed. John's Gospel, one of the four accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, says this. And if you've, incidentally, if you're not familiar perhaps with the story... On our information point at the back, we've got a whole load of little booklets just containing John's Gospel. I'd love you to take one and you can read these Easter events through for yourself in the words of people who were actually there and saw, saw it. There's also another booklet there which you're welcome to take as well, just having another look at the meaning of Easter. So we find Jesus uh, handed over to be executed. The soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. After a while, several hours of hanging on the cross in pain, in agony, being mocked and abused by the official people there, the the Jewish officials, the Roman soldiers, by crowds passing by, Jesus is reaching his end. He says this later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The body was certified dead by the authorities. It was released into the hands of some people who admired Jesus greatly. And they took it and they buried him in a cave tomb. This was the standard way of burying people uh, in that particular culture. Jesus would have been wrapped in, in, a, in a cloth and just placed laying down in this tomb. And then a large stone would have been rolled over to seal over the entrance to the cave with Jesus inside. And there he remains. And his followers go home devastated. What happened to the triumphal entry? What happened to the victory parade? On Sunday morning, everything is changed. Some of his disciples go to the tomb almost to kind of pay our last respects and dis- to discover to their shock and dismay the stone has been rolled away. It's probably a several ton stone has been rolled away from the entrance. The body's gone. There's the sheet, the cloth that he was wrapped in lying there. But the body's gone and they're thinking someone's taken him. Some grave robbers, someone's nabbed it. They're going to be mistreating and abusing the body. This is terrible. And, and then there's talk of angels appearing. 
and people seeing supernatural beings. And then most incredible of all, there's talk of Jesus himself appearing. And he starts to speak to people and hold conversations with them. And the disciples themselves have this sense of profound disbelief to the point where one of them says, look, what, what is this? Is this a hallucination? Is this a ghost? What are we seeing? Is this, unless I've got proof that this is a physical body of Jesus, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus speaks to this disciple and says, look, I'm physical. Touch me. Look, I'm, if you want, put your fingers in the holes in my hands. I'm, I'm physically here. And they're reeling from it. They, they head away from the city of Jerusalem back to their homeland in Galilee. And we find that they almost think, let's, let's just spend the night fishing. Let's do what we've ever used to do. And in the morning, it says they suddenly encounter Jesus is on the beach. And he's prepared a breakfast of barbecued fish and, and, and bread, which he's cooked right there for them. So they step out. And it says again in John's Gospel, this time Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And it goes on to say, after they'd eaten, and then it recounts a whole conversation with him. Which, incidentally, combined with the fact that these events take place in the city of Jerusalem at a certain specified time that we can chronologically date, really makes the myth option one that we have to leave to one side. Because myths happened a long, long time ago in the days of, days of yore, the times of legend in unspecified strange kingdoms. This happened at a time and a place and it was written by people who were there. And then far from being just some kind of weird psychological kind of hallucination, Jesus is sitting with them, eating with them, sharing food. He's physically there. It's not fleeting glimpses. And so they have this amazing kind of barbecue fish breakfast on the beach, speaking with a resurrected Jesus. But this is still not the Easter banquet. This is just another meal Jesus is sharing with them. Then there's repeated physical appearances over a period of about six weeks until Jesus says, the time has come for me now to physically go away from you. But I'm going to be here in a different way after this. The question that we've got to ask if you want to say, what is the real big idea of Easter? Is what happened in Jerusalem around about 34 AD? What happened on that mountain in the central Judean highlands? And we're going to try and understand it by reading something that was written in exactly the same place but centuries beforehand. This is a passage that was written by Isaiah, a Jewish prophet, speaking around about 700 BC, speaking in the streets of Jerusalem, on the same mountain that it's built in, as the Easter events happened. And this is what he says. It should come up behind me for you to see as well. On this mountain, the mountain that's built on in the central Judean highlands, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. On the first Easter Sunday, Jesus permanently destroyed death. Death is pictured like a shroud, like a funeral wrap, like the cloth that Jesus himself was wrapped in in the tomb. And it's the, it's the shroud that envelops all people. He's speaking here, this is a universal thing. We, we live, we breathe, we walk around, and yet this shroud is moving closer to us. There's going to come a day where all of us, where we cease to live. And it envelops us and it suffocates us and takes the life away from us. I was reading an interview this week with a famous 
uh, actor who says, he's, he, says he, he kind of gets on with his life, but he can't sort his perspective out because he will be walking down the street thinking, this is a beautiful day, I'm on my way to a great engagement, and he says, suddenly the thought will hit me, you're going to die. And he's right. It's the shroud that envelops us all, suffocating us. Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, wrote, what meaning has my life that the inevitability of death cannot destroy? He says, what, what do I do that has any point given the fact that this shroud is one day going to wrap me up and take me away forever? The message of Easter, part of the Easter story, is that Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, tore the shroud to shreds. It's like death, this, this blanket that wraps up, and Jesus rips it apart and destroys it, not just untangles himself in it, lucky escape, got away from that one. Fortunately, there was a a defibrillator nearby that kind of pulled me back to life. Now, the message of Easter is this shroud hasn't been just put to one side or pushed back a little bit or delayed. It's been torn and broken. In fact, there's a much stronger metaphor in the same passage rather than just kind of this shroud is torn. When I was, if you were my sort of age, and let's, let's hope that there are many people thinking, yes, I'm roughly your sort of age. Do you, do you remember all those safety films they used to do when, when, when people my age were kids? If you're young, you won't remember them because they probably give you kind of safe sanitized versions of them now. But when I was a kid, the safety films were, were like kind of 18-rated horror films. They, you know, they were, they, were, they were just whole classrooms full of kids lying awake at night just with sweating and nightmares of the terrors. It would, like, you, you step on a farm, you're going to die. You, you step on a building site, you are so going to die. You, you look at a train, you're going to die. You go in the kitchen and you take anything in there and eat and drink it, you're going to die. It's going to be... And I, I used to... I was, I was terrified of most of these ones. I thought, oh, you know, if I go on a farm, I'm bound to fall in a slurry pit. Oh, no. Or, you know, a building site. I've been hit by a brick and an electric wire and a digger, and it was terrible. The one that I never got, though, which it's a, is the bleach. There must have been a bunch of kids somewhere who did those. The ones about kind of put your dangerous chemicals away. Don't, don't store bleach in lemonade bottles. Don't store them where kids are going to get them. They're going to drink them. And I, I genuinely, as a little kid, I used to think, if you were stupid enough to take a bottle of lemonade with a strong bleachy odor and sort of drink it and your mouth's burning and, and you, you, you know, your esophagus is burning but you're still thinking lemonade, I'm drinking it. There's a lot of me thought, you deserve everything that's coming to you. What? I, don't, I don't need to be told don't store bleach underneath the sink. On the other hand, my wife tells me she's got a very clear recollection of sitting under the kitchen sink as a small child feeding spoonfuls of caustic soda to her brother. So <laughs> it, it takes all sorts, doesn't it? That's it turns out that's what hospitals are for. But the, the, the point is this, that the idea was that this, this stuff is so toxic and dangerous, you've got to keep it out of reach of children. I mean, if it was as dangerous as some of those adverts, would say keep it out of reach of everyone. You, just, you have to have some sort of certificate to handle it. But it's a fair point, isn't it? You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to leave something lethal just lying around. Let, let alone put it in a jar of lemonade or a, you know, a can of lemonade and think that would be a safe holding. There's nothing more lethal than death. This passage, it tells us about Jesus. He swallows up death forever. He takes it into himself. When Jesus died, he's swallowing it up. He's drinking it up. Why? Because it's so lethal. He's got to find a way of making it safe. He's got to find a way of detoxifying it. It's no good just to put it in a proper bottle with a, you know, with a kid-proof lid that adults can't open and kids can. He's got he's, he's to find a way. 
And the way Jesus finds of dealing ultimately with the problem, how am I going to deal with this thing, this fatal fluid? Jesus takes it into himself. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's drinking it down to put it beyond our reach. He's taking it into himself so that we are no longer in danger of grabbing the bottle and glugging it down. He swallows it up forever. He ingests it. He takes it into himself. Somehow death itself is being absorbed into Jesus in his death and resurrection. He truly gave his life for us. And yet the beautiful, beautiful message of Easter is that wasn't the end. It wasn't, oh, what a noble sacrifice. He drank the bottle of bleach. He took the bullet with my name on it. He wrapped himself in the shroud and died. What a noble martyr to the cause. The amazing message of Jesus is it's not the end. Jesus' resurrection, when he rose from the dead, disarmed death. It's like having taken it in, swallowed it up. He digested it and broke it down into its constituent nutrients, and there's nothing else left of it. He's disarmed it. The bomb can no longer go off. It's no longer toxic. It's no longer fatal. It's gone. He swallows it up into himself. It's, it's powerless. It's swallowed up by life. I'll give you an example which feels slightly disrespectful, but on the balance, I thought this will work. There was a, I don't know if you clocked it in the news this week, there was an old boy who loves feeding the ducks, and I think it was somewhere in, in, in Wales, not that that matters particularly. But it's, and he loved feeding the ducks, and he, was, and he was feeding all these little ducklings, and a heron came down, you know, the great big kind of birds, and the heron ate one of these ducklings right in front of him, just, just, just boom, bang, like that, swallowed it down, taken away. This man is a bird lover, so obviously he does the only thing he can do. He, he tears the heron open to, to remove the duckling, tears, rips it open, te- tears its stomach out, and pulls out the still living, damp, slightly surprised, hugely relieved... <laughs> duckling, which then goes on its way uh, quite happily. Herons are a protected species, I learned from the article, and the, the, the police were involved, as were the RSPB, but uh, he's a bird lover, so what, 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 could you, what could you do? However, the point is this, forgive me if it stretches the point, but it's kind of okay. Forget, that duckling doesn't have to worry about that heron ever again, does it? No, 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 no. That, that heron is, is just... That's not going to be swallowing ducklings a- a- anymore. It's the, the duckling's gone into death. It's come out alive, and he doesn't have to fear this heron a- 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 anymore. Even if, somehow, even if somehow the duck wandered into the heron, it can just wander back out the big hole in it. In a, in a very loose kind of weird way, that is like the resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection of Jesus is not just he died and was resuscitated for a bit. Oh, I'm back. Well, I've got another few years. Well, that's tremendous. The death and resurrection of Jesus was such that he died... And he destroyed death in rising from the dead. Bursting out through the heron, if you like. It's, it's gone. Not a phrase we use often at this church. But it's, it's like take the cave analogy. You know, the, the think about Jesus being put in. He was laid in this cave tomb. Think you, it, we, we sometimes think wrongly of the, Jesus risen from the dead. It's like you put him in the tomb. The, 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 like put him in the tomb. It's like it's death. And he's risen from the dead. He comes back out again. Well, this is, this is great. I've got some more years. But one day he'll die again and we'll pop him back. You know the people that have... Um, you know, there's always someone, you know, oh, yeah, I've been medically dead for 20 minutes, you know. And they mean, they, they died, a heart stopped, everything stopped. Boom, boom, we've got the heart working again, they're alive again. But you know that those people have, have, have kind of died, gone into the cave, they've come out. You know they're going to go back in again at some point, don't they? 
None of the people that you ever speak to, it's medically dead for 28 minutes. None of them are claiming, I'm, I'm going to live forever. But Jesus didn't die, come back out the entrance of the cave. You, you take the stretched analogy, it's like Jesus died, went into the cave and burst out the other side. The cave is much less like a cave now and much more of a tunnel. It's, it's more just out. He, he, he's never going back in again. And because he's done that, because he's torn this hole through it, there's a passage through it for us. He's, he's ripped a hole in the shroud. The shroud comes to envelop us. Jesus just goes straight through the other side. We go through it. That's why for a Christian, someone who's put their faith in Jesus, someone who's connected with him, someone that knows what it is to have this incredible connection, this relationship with Jesus, death is not a problem anymore. It's not a problem anymore. It's, it's like an inoculation. In an inoculation, you have a few symptoms, but you're never going to get this full-blown disease. When you connect your life with Jesus, you, you, you become inoculated against death. You're going to get a few symptoms. Yeah, your body will stop working, but you're not going to die. You're not going to get a full-blown disease. Because Jesus' death and resurrection was about breaking away through to the other side of death that we can come through with him. It was about swallowing it up and taking it away. The shroud to a, to a believer in Jesus, the shroud is no longer this suffocating cloth that's going to wrap me and kind of just end the life and suffocate me. It's a curtain that we brush aside as we step through to another room, as we step out into the sunshine of a new day. That's why Christians don't fear death. We step into an eternity of life. Jesus invites us to step through into a new undying era. He invites us to step through into a new deathless world, into a whole new creation, which is what this feast is all about. Let me read the feast lines to you again. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aging wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I like that sort of imagery. That works for me. You know, all these great meats and wines and vintage wines. It's gone out of its way to say the best of everything. This luxury banquet is a frequent symbol in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus. It's a frequent symbol for what it's like in God's new creation. It's a frequent symbol for what it's like in the world that God's going to remake. It's a frequent symbol of what it's going to be like to be caught up in an in, in a, in a, in a unbreakable connection with Jesus. It's a feast of abundant luxury foods, vintage wines. It's a picture of the pure joy and the delight and the sumptuousness and the bounty of what God provides for us in his new creation. Particularly when you compare that with the bland. I mean, we live, we live and dine like kings in our culture most of the time. Compare it with what most of the people around the world today and most of the people back through history have. Very, very bland sort of subsistence diet. Can I get enough carbs in to keep me going? If I get a little bit of a protein, I'm pleased. Most, most people in, in the time that this passage was written, and indeed in the same in the time of Jesus, that in the Middle East, their diet would consist largely of a lot of bread, a lot of beans and pulses, and, and a little bit of fish to kind of jazz it up. So when you say a, you know, a feast of... A fe- you wouldn't be saying a feast of artisan loaves. That wouldn't appeal to these people. But you say, the finest of meats, aged wine. You think, oh man, I'm, I'm drooling already. I'm, I can't. He said, this is, 
this is what the feast of God is going to be like. It's not, it's, it's, this new creation God's going to do is not a subsistence creation where you kind of eke out a boring, bland existence. It's going to be something phenomenal. Something that you breathe the scent of it in and you think, this is so incredible. That's why Sarah was saying, I've, just, I've got something to look forward to. Whatever life brings, there's something amazing there. Christians don't, contrary to popular belief, Christians don't picture eternal life. This, this life going on forever as clouds and wings and harps and just drifted and floating around. We picture it as a luxury banquet with all these seats drawn up. There's another, there's another course. There's another course, my friends. An, another drink. There's another drink. This is the picture God wants us to have in mind when he understands what it means to live forever with Jesus, with him. This is why the eating references were so important in the Easter story. All these little, they're teasers. It's why the beach, beach barbecue is so important. It's why the Last Supper is so important. It's why even drinking the wine vinegar on the cross is so important. They're trailers for the main feature. They're teasers to whet our appetite, to think, oh, yeah, I imagine that banquet. It's getting us ready to understand Jesus' death and resurrection not only swallows up death, but it opens the doors to the banquet hall of God where we can step in and suddenly find this is incredible because Jesus' death kills death. Jesus' resurrection gives birth to a whole new world, a whole new creation, a whole new era. He swallowed the poison so that we can enjoy the feast. One day he's going to make everything new. He's going to transform the world. Like his body after his resurrection was real, was physical, but was deathless. He's going to transform everything into a real, physical, deathless world. If you're a Christian here, you don't look forward to beyond your death a vague existence of sort of what is it kind of slightly blurry spirituality. You're going to walk on solid ground, you're going to eat and drink the banquet of God, literally. You're going to be able to hug people and feel the embrace. In this new world, there's going to be no sickness. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no suffering. Injustice and oppression will be done away with. People who have forgotten the concept of hate and anger, we don't understand even what those things anymore. Selfishness, aggression, spite, envy. Those things are gone. God's creating a new creation that's been swallowed up in life. The new creation is going to be a new season. It's going to be spring forever. You're going to be smelling the blossom on the trees, knowing that winter is never, ever coming back again. That's what happens when you sit down at the feast of God, the Easter feast. To become a Christian, to truly connect your life with the life of God in Jesus, is to become part of this new creation. It says in the New Testament, if anyone's in Christ... A new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has come. When you give your life to Jesus, truly and completely unite yourself with him, you're changed. It's like spring bursts out in you. And the way you think, the way you act, what you hope for, the way you view the world, suddenly you're viewing it through Easter banquet eyes. You're viewing it as through new creation eyes. It's transformative. I guess I've got two messages to say in closing. The first one is this. If you're a Christian here, if you know you've definitely given your life to Jesus and you know he's definitely changed you inside, you know that you're accepted by God through him because you've irrevocably joined yourself to him through faith. I've got a really simple Easter message for you. Rejoice in the new creation. Delight in it. Don't fear death. 
You brush it aside like some cobwebs as you step through. I've, I've known Christians... I'll tell you about that in a minute. If you're a Christian, do not fear death. That's why the Bible says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's like a scorpion walking around, but he's, he's got no sting on the end. I'm not frightened of you. Might be a bit creepy. I wouldn't want to touch you, but you can't, you can't touch me. If you're a Christian, delight in the new creation. Even as your body gets older and starts giving up in all sorts of ways. Delight to walk through the curtain to the feast. I'd also to just give you an invite to the banquet. If you're not a Christian here, if you're investigating faith, or you think, I, I don't believe faith, I'm not, I don't believe God, I'm here because someone asked me, I'm here just for Easter, I'm here for whatever reason. I honestly want to invite you to the banquet. I want to invite you to think again about this. The death and resurrection of Jesus was to reconnect us with God. The invite is not just, can I have a free ticket to get me to heaven? Phew, that was close. The invite is certainly not an invite to, oh, great, can can I just basically just follow lots of rules and regulations and have a really dull life now? Brilliant, just what I was looking for. The, The invite is to the banquet of God. The invite to Jesus is to pull up a chair and sit down and feast on the good things that God has for us in this life and the next. The invite is a life, an invite to give up on the bland winter world under the shroud that we live today. And to step into spring. And to drink in the odors and the flavors. As we find that there's an incredible new creation world there. It's to join in the feast. It starts now. And it lasts forever beyond the curtain. That's why Christians, we don't fear death. And I have known Christians battle depression, anxiety, addiction, bereavement, cancer, serious diseases, facing death itself, and yet they've been full of new covenant life. It's like they're shining with the joy of the new creation because they're understanding this isn't a set of rules I'm part of. This isn't even a religious organization I'm part of. I'm feasting on the banquet of God. And I'm going to step through the shroud, through the curtain, and keep feasting. I'd invite you, seriously, to consider the invite to the feast. If you think, I'm not sure it sounds interesting, you can investigate. There's plenty more you can do to find out. Each week we talk about these kind of things here on a Sunday. As we said, we've got the literature at the back, the, the, the Easter booklets. We've got the John's Gospel at the back. People here will happily chat. Some of you may want to take time. Some of you may be thinking, I've, I've taken time, I've investigated. I think this is true. My invite is, it's Easter Sunday. It's the day we remember. Death was killed. The banquet doors were thrown open. Maybe today is the day you give your life to Jesus. And everything changes for you. But it is because of Jesus. It's not about us being good enough. It's about him being good enough. Jesus ate death so that we can taste life. Jesus drank wine vinegar on the cross so we can sip from the vintage of the banquet of God. He has done everything necessary for you to enter in to the Easter banquet, this new creation life. That's what Easter's about. Is it about a new season? Yeah. So much more than we thought before. Is it about the power of love over hate? Yeah, it is, but so much more than we thought before. Is it about making a fresh start? Yes, it is. But so much more 
than we thought before? Is it about hope for a better future? Yes, it is. So much more than we thought before. Let me read you the lines again. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's the Easter message, my friends. If the band could come up, we're just going to pray and then we're going to worship. Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you changed everything at Easter. I thank you so much. Death was killed and a whole new creation was born. I thank you so much you invite us to sit and feast with you at the banquet of God. With a quality and a reality of life that starts now and goes on beyond the grave. Amen.